Galatia is not a city. We need to understand that. It's a region. It encompasses the areas of Antioch, Iconium, Leicester, Derby. These were places that Paul visited on his first missionary journey. And the time frame of the writing of this letter to all these churches in the southern portion of Galatia is around 50 AD. And for the most part, even the most liberal scholars believe that Paul wrote this letter. We have uh, early church fathers like Polycarp and Justin Mar- Martin, or Martyr, excuse me, and and uh, Clement of Alexandria and others, who said that Paul wrote this letter. And you know, it's also addressed Paul an apostle, right, and right in the very beginning. So we don't even have to guess. Um, and I like what. Uh, Merle C. Tenney wrote, he kind of called this the Declaration of Independence of Christian Liberty. And he wrote this, he said, Christianity might have been just one more Jewish sect, and the thought of the Western world might have been entirely pagan had it never been written. Galatians embodies the germinal teaching on Christian freedom, which separated Christianity from Judaism, and which launched it upon a career of missionary conquest. It was the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation, because of salvation by grace alone became the dominant theme of the preaching of the Reformers. So, again, this letter to me is just as important today as it was during Paul's day when he wrote this letter to the region of Galatia, to the churches out there, that we are saved by grace through faith, faith and not by the law through works. And think about it. I mean, over 1,900 years ago, this was an issue, and people today are still trying to mix grace and the law, and it doesn't work. Adding anything to grace doesn't make it better. It doesn't add to it at all. In fact, it cheapens it. It destroys it. Think about it. If grace is something that I don't deserve, I'm receiving something that I totally don't deserve, as in salvation, if I add works to it now, me doing something, then it is no longer grace, but it's works. And then God owes me heaven, and wouldn't that be a horrible thing, right? God owes me heaven. No, he doesn't. We don't deserve heaven. Not even a little. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so as we go through this letter, Paul is going to show us what saving faith is and what it isn't. And so let's pick up Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and let's see what the Lord has for us this evening. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, Paul opens up with his position of authority. He's an apostle. You think, well, why did he say that? I mean, is he bragging? No, I don't think he's bragging. I think because he wants to establish himself that he is a man of authority, that he has the right to come against these false teachers, these Judaizers who were coming in after Paul taught, and they were mixing law and grace together for salvation. So Paul wants these churches in Galatia to know that this was a divine calling by God. He didn't decide this position. Men didn't choose him. Paul, we're going to make you an apostle. Not at all. It's God who called him into that position. And so he speak, as he speaks, as he rebukes these false teachers and this false doctrine, he has the authority of God to do so. And, you know, I think that that should be true in our own lives as well. God does the calling. It's his divine call upon our lives. It's not something we've orchestrated or manipulated. I mean, I can honestly say that for myself. There is no way I ever thought I would want to speak in front of people. I feared speaking in front of people. I hated speaking in front of people. And God said, I'm going to bring you to Wisconsin from Chicago to be a pastor. And it's almost you just laugh. That's what you want me to do? I can do anything else. Why that? And that's what he called me. It's a call upon our lives. And I think God appoints us for positions in ministry. You know, for me, at at Calvary Chapel in Manitowoc, the way I I really don't pick elders. Um, I watch what God is doing in people's lives what God is doing in men's lives and how he's raising them up, how they're, they're ministering without a title. You see, do you need a title to minister? You really don't. And I see what they're doing, and I pray about it. But I don't raise them up. God does. I just acknowledge what God is doing. And that's, you know, it, it's something that my pastor taught me years ago, that don't put someone in leadership or ministry position because you have a need. That's the wrong reason. 
Because once they're in that position, it's really hard to remove them. Be patient, wait upon God, and let him raise the person up. Now, in a sense, we are all leaders. Maybe in the church, maybe in the home, at work. And here's the thing. If there's something wrong, if there's something out of order, we have to deal with it. What's happening in the church today is we want to ignore what's going on. We don't want to expose sin in the church, false doctrine in the church. You may hear them say, you know, we don't want to uh, hang our dirty laundry out on the line for everyone to see. Well, my question is, if it's dirty laundry, why are you hanging it out on the line in the first place? Don't even put it out there. Why are you bringing that into the church? If you didn't, we wouldn't have to let people know about it, right? It's as simple as that. And it needs to be exposed. You know, does covering it up help the situation at all? No, it it doesn't. Look at what's going on in churches across America today, how we moved away from the word of God. I mean, you know, I don't know if you've seen the video with Andy Stanley teaching, and um, he, he was you know, talking about the Bible. And he says, you know, you know that song you, you learned when you were a kid in Sunday school? You know, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Well, that's not really true. The Bible doesn't tell us that. We can't trust what the Bible says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I think that's pretty simple. The question is, are you going to listen to Andy Stanley or are you going to listen to God? And there's where the problem is. I didn't see one person in that church get up and walk out when he said that, when he was degrading God's word. Jesus is called the word. The word of God is opened up. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's given to us. It's from the mouth of God it's breathed from. And yet, you know, hey, let's, let's not expose that stuff because we may offend someone. Well, Paul didn't have that problem. He was more than willing to be a God-pleaser than a man-pleaser. And I'll tell you what, if you please God, you will bless men. They may not always like what you have to say, but they will be blessed if they listen to you. So we need to learn these lessons. I think, again, they're important ones for the days we're living in. Verse 3 here in Galatians 1. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Yeah, he's just got to put an amen in there. So this was a familiar greeting, grace and peace, the Greek and the Jewish greeting. And the idea here is that both Jews and Greeks are one in Christ. And so he's greeting them both. And that's really the body of Christ is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And writing in these churches to Galatia, yeah, there are Jews within those churches as well. One writer said, grace is always first, peace is always second. This is due to the fact that grace is the source of peace. Without grace, there is and can be no peace. But when grace is ours, peace must of necessity follow. Absolutely. Paul in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Isaiah 26.3, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. This is a benefit of having our minds focused upon the Lord. We're going to have peace. And the interesting thing is, it's perfect peace. And in the Hebrew, it's really shalom, shalom. It's, you're going to have peace, peace. And the repetition communicates this intensity It's just not shalom. It's just not peace. It's perfect peace that God gives to us. But again, you can never experience the peace of God until you first make peace with God. And that is done through Jesus Christ, as we saw in Romans. If we can focus upon the Lord, trust in him, we can boldly then proclaim what Paul said in Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. When you are going through tough times, is it always easy? Absolutely not. But you see, we can have peace through those difficult times because God is working something good out of that. Do I always see the good that comes out of it? No, 
Maybe it'll be years down the road before I see it. Sometimes it is right away. But we can enjoy that shalom, shalom, or that perfect peace of God during those difficult times. And, you know, the key in what Isaiah said is our mind must be stayed on the Lord. It's a Hebrew word that carries with it the idea of uh, propping up or leaning upon, taking hold of. What's sustaining your mind? What do you lay your mind upon? What upholds your mind? What does your mind stand fast upon? What's your mind established upon? What does your mind lean upon? You see, to have this perfect peace, your mind can occasionally come to the Lord. It needs to be stayed upon him. And now you know why Satan loves to get our minds on anything and everything except the Lord. Because there's no peace out there apart from him. Now Solomon said in Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. That word lean carries with it the same idea of propping up or leaning upon the Lord. Resting in him. He's the stable force in our life. Apart from Christ, there is no peace. None. In fact, we see that in Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21, for the unsaved. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. It's not that they have a little peace. They don't have the perfect peace of God in their lives because they've never met the Prince of Peace who can give them that kind of peace. And that's just the way it is. And back here in Galatians, Paul speaks of how we can be saved by Jesus, how we have been delivered from this present evil age. And again, that's what we're told in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God the Father gave his son. Here in Galatians, we're told that Jesus gave himself to pay for our sins. He paid the price for our sins. And if we receive that free gift from God, we can be delivered from this present evil age. It's power that is upon our lives. This evil age. I mean, have you noticed that this world is getting pretty evil? I don't know if you've seen that. Did you pick up on that? I mean, I, I just watched a little bit of the presidential debate. Oh, my gosh. I'm like, really? I don't know how many million people we have in this country, but this is it. These are the two. And I, I really think that God is saying, you don't want me in this nation. This is what you get. We need to look at it as an opportunity. Because our mission doesn't change. Our mission is still to bring the Prince of Peace to people so they can enjoy that perfect peace that's only found in him. And I'll tell you what, as things continue on, it's going to get a lot tougher in this nation. We have... I'm currently working, just doing the groundwork for a study in in Ephesians with spiritual warfare. But when I look at this nation... I see that they've destroyed three different things in this nation. First of all, the government. That is kind of the body of the nation. That's what holds the nation together. Our constitution, I mean, what a powerful constitution it is. And it's lasted all these years. But it's gone. Next, they destroyed the family. The family is the heart of the nation. And look at, we don't even know what a family is anymore. And the third thing that they've destroyed is the church. And that is the spirit of the nation. And if the spirit is dead, so is the nation. Guys, I am so thankful that the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. There's always going to be a remnant of God's people. But the battle is getting intense. We are more interested in being entertained than being convicted and drawing closer to God. Yeah, I mean, when you read the scriptures and you're, you're teaching from the scriptures, and I'm studying the scriptures, there's a lot of conviction. There's a lot of looking at my own Christian walk and what I need to change. And isn't that what it's about? How many of you here are perfect right now? 
Well, I'm only perfect in Christ, and he sees the finished work, but down here, it's not finished. He's still working, and so these lessons are so important for us. And we have to remember that it's never about us. We are just the instrument. Paul says, you know, who, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So be it. You know, think about that. We've we got guys today that just want to be, you know, praised and, and put up on the big screen. No. It's all him. It's, it has nothing to do with me. I read in the Old Testament, I don't know if you read this, God used a donkey to speak to Balaam, right? So it doesn't really, I don't know what he thinks of me, but he gets the glory. Think about it. If you went into the hospital, or your loved one went into the hospital, has had major surgery, and it was touch and go, and after several hours, the doctor comes out, says, I've got good news. Everything went well. Your loved one's going to make it. You don't go, hey, Doc, where's the scalpel? All praise and glory and honor goes to the scalpel. He would think you were nuts. That's just the instrument. The doctor did the the surgery. We're just the instrument. God is using us to minister to the people in this world. Never forget that. And for Jesus... You know, I I can just speak for myself. I look at my life and go, man, you died for me, Lord. You gave your life freely for me to satisfy God's righteous demands against my sins, the sins of this world. You've reconciled me, the people of this world who have received you, back to God. You paid in full the penalty for sins. Like Peter said, you know, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death, in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Absolutely. Well, back in Galatians, look at verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or distort the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul often opens up his letters with praise unto the uh, recipients of his letters, you know, Thanksgiving, but Galatians, no. I get the idea here. It's like Paul saying, we need to talk. This is important. See, he is amazed. He's astounded. He's bewildered that they've turned away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. They're embracing a false gospel, a false Jesus. They're turning away from Jesus. You see, these Judaizers would come in, and they recognized Jesus as the Messiah. They spoke of a sacrificial death. But they tried to improve on it by mixing the law with grace and adding anything to grace, like I said, just destroys it. In Romans 11.6, this is from the Amplified Bible, but if it is by grace, his unmerited favor and graciousness, it is no longer conditioned on works or anything men have done. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It would be meaningless. Absolutely. How true that is. And yet people still try to do it. One writer put it like this. He said, the most destructive dangers to the church have never been atheism, pagan religions, or cults that openly deny scripture, but rather supposedly Christian movements that accept so much biblical truth that their unscriptural doctrines seem relatively insignificant and harmless. But a single drop of poison in a large container can make all the water lethal. And a single false idea that in any way undercuts God's grace poisons the whole system of belief. Absolutely. You know, in Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 through 4, Paul's warning them. He said, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And Look at what's going on today. I wonder how many in the emergent church or seeker-friendly church or the purpose-driven church have read that. There are different gospels out there. There's other Jesuses out there than the one we read of in the scriptures. And they want us to follow. But I'll tell you what, 
there's no reason for us to be deceived because we have the truth of God found in the word of God opened up to us by the spirit of God. We shouldn't fall for their lies, their deceptions. And, you know, we have people that alter the scriptures today. You know, we've got Bibles like the message, which distort the scriptures. Why? Why are they trying to get the Bible out of the hands of the common people? Because the truth will set you free. You know, why did the Roman Catholic Church not want the Bible in the hands of the common people? Why did they put to death millions of Christians for their faith? Because they knew the truth would expose the lies of the Roman Catholic Church. The truth will set you free. Don't leave home without it. The word of God. It is that important. Well, Paul even hits harder here. Look at verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. You know, those are tough words that Paul is speaking against these false teachers. They're going to see the judgment of God upon their lives, anathema. Now, some read that and go, well, where's the love, Paul? That's hateful. That's intolerant. That's what we hear today. But think about it. Would you send your child to school where the teacher is teaching them lies? No, because that's dangerous. It's going to hurt them. And Paul is just exposing to these believers in these churches in Galatia this false doctrine that's coming into the church. He's warning them to pay attention. But again, you know, we get this idea that, and we hear these, these phrases, hey, we want to be known what we're for, not what we're against. Well, imagine if Paul was writing these words today. In many churches, we'd have to get rid of the epistles because Paul is pretty judgmental. He's pretty negative. He doesn't talk a lot about what he's for, but he's surely talking a lot about what he's against. So the epistles of Paul need to go. And John, you know, there's judgment in his epistles there. Jude, contend for the faith. Come on, we don't want to fight with anyone. And John, again, in the book of Revelation, talk about judgment. Ease up, man. Cut out deep. Get rid of the caffeine. And we could do that all the way through, even the Gospels. I mean, Jesus, you know, brood of vipers, right? So we removed every book of the New Testament today, if we go by that. Oh, but there is a book out there, Jesus Calling. Why don't we get that one? Because those are doctrines of demons, guys. This is the word of God. You know, God loves us so much that he tells us exactly what we need, everything that we need as Christians to grow, to mature. Even before we're saved, it's the word of God opened up to our hearts that brings us to saving faith. So why do we think that these words are hateful? They're not. Paul warned the church in Ephesus, when he met with the Ephesian elders at Miletus. The savage wolves are going to rise up from outside the church and come in and try and bring in their false doctrine, but also there's going to be savage wolves from within that are going to rise up. And if they're not exposed, then how do you know which are the bad ones? They say, well, there's this guy down the street that is teaching some bad stuff. I don't want to say his name because, you know, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. Of course, Paul ruffled a lot of feathers. And Paul even repeats himself to drive home that point. The same curse in verse 9. I don't know about you, but when I was young and I did something wrong, my mom would say, Joseph William Guillermo, get in this house right now. And if I have to repeat myself, that was it. I knew if that was repeated, I was even in more trouble. And that's Paul's point here. If you preach these false gospels, you are in big trouble. Not with Paul, but with God. 
You're leading people astray. Now, Joseph Smith, the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormons, was given revelations from the angel Moroni, which I think is hilarious, okay, just because of what's said here. You know, Paul said, even if we or an angel from where? From heaven. Like the angel Moroni. Doesn't that, like, any red flags? And if you read what's written from the angel Moroni, he's full of baloney, as far as I can tell. Anyway, here's the thing that's really interesting. Mormons consider themselves as Christians. But they are preaching a different gospel. This is exactly what Paul's talking about here. It's a different gospel. You know, uh, Walter Martin in his book, Kingdom of the Cults, he said this. He said, personal salvation in Mormonism is one of the doctrines most heavily emphasized. And since Christianity is the gospel or good news of God's redemption in Christ, it is inevitable that the two should come into conflict. Now, as I'm reading this, I want you to pay close attention to what they believe and see if it mimics any huge church today. Listen carefully. The Mormon doctrine of salvation involves not only faith in Christ, but baptism by immersion, obedience to the teaching of the Mormon church, good works, and keeping the commandments of God, which will cleanse away the stain of sin. Apparently Brigham Brigham was ignorant of the biblical pronouncement that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The Mormon teaching concerning salvation is, therefore, quite the opposite of the New Testament revelation of justification by faith and redemption solely by grace through faith in Christ. Brigham Young, an authoritative Mormon source by any standard, was quite opposed to the Christian doctrine of salvation, which which teaches that a person may at any time sincerely repent of his sins, even at the eleventh hour, and receive forgiveness and eternal light. Brigham wrote, Some of our old traditions teach us that a man guilty of atrocious and murderous acts may savingly repent on the scaffold, and upon his execution will hear the expression, Bless God, he has gone to heaven to be crowned in glory through the all-redeeming merits of Christ the Lord. This is all nonsense. Such a character we will never see in heaven. According to the Mormon scheme of salvation, the gods who created this earth actually planned that Adam, who was to become ruler of this domain, and his wife Eve were predestined to sin so that the race of man who now inhabit this earth might come into being and eventually reach godhood. The fall in the Garden of Eden was actually the means by which, by which act Adam and Eve became mortal and could beget mortal children. The Lord Jesus offered one eternal sacrifice for all sins, and his salvation comes not by the works of the law or by any human works, whatever, but solely by grace through faith. The Savior of the New Testament revelation existed eternally as God, lived a holy, harmless, and undefiled life, separate from sinners, and knew no sin. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The savior of Mormonism, however, is an entirely different person, as their official publications clearly reveal. The Mormon savior is not the second person of the Christian trinity, since, as we've seen previously, Mormons reject the Christian doctrine of the trinity, and he is not even a careful replica of the New Testament redeemer. In Mormon theology, Christ as a pre-existent spirit was not only the spirit brother of the devil, but celebrated his own marriage to both the Marys and Martha, whereby he could see his seed before he was crucified. As we have seen previously, the Mormon concept of the virgin birth alone distinguishes their Christ from the Christ of the Bible. In addition to this revolting concept, Brigham Young categorically stated that the sacrifice made upon the cross by Jesus Christ in the form of his own blood was ineffective for the cleansing of some sins. Brigham went on to teach the now suppressed but never officially repudiated doctrine of blood atonement. To better understand Young's limitation of cleansing power of Christ's blood, these are his words. Suppose you found your brother in bed with your wife and put a javelin through both of them. You would be justified and they would atone for their sins and be received into the kingdom of God. I would at once do so in such a case, and under such circumstances. I have no wife whom I love so well that I would not put a javelin through her heart, and I would do it with clean hands. That's kind of an interesting way to say you can kill the the guy who's sleeping with your wife and your wife. 
And it's okay because now you shed their blood and their blood is cleansing them and you're, you're fine with it. You're, you didn't do anything wrong. Isn't that amazing? This is a different gospel. A different Jesus. You see, exposing this is not unloving. It shows that you do care. Jesus is alone and take our sins away. You know, Peter said in, in Acts chapter 4, this is a stone was re, which was rejected by you, the builders, that has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He alone. Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Can that be done with The shedding blood of bulls and goats? No. But with the shed blood of Christ, our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. Not only that, Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I like that. He doesn't remember them. Someone asked me a few weeks back or so, you know, does God have a record of my sins? No. There may be a file cabinet up there in heaven, and you open it up, and there's nothing in there. Why? Because those sins have been paid for. They're gone. We remember them, but God doesn't. Why? Because they've been paid for by Jesus Christ's shed blood. If they were still there, we would be in trouble. But they're gone. Now, as you listen about the Mormon church and the things you have to do to be saved, It should remind us very much of what's going on in the Roman Catholic Church. And as you listen to what's going on today, they're calling for Protestants to come back home to the mothership or mother church or whatever. And here's the wonderful thing, guys. They've forgiven us. Of what? What did we do? We didn't kill millions of Christians for leaving the Roman Catholic Church, but they did. And I'll tell you what, I came out of the Roman Catholic Church. I understand what they're teaching. And it's a different gospel. In fact, it's a different Jesus. It's one who hangs on a cross, still. And it's a one who's seen in a wafer. But he's not Almighty God, because he can't save you from your sins. You see, yes, Jesus paid for your sins, but not all of them. And you have to do, go to Mass. You have to do the sacraments. And even when you do all that, when you die, you go to purgatory because you will atone for your sins. And hopefully you have some very nice friends and relatives who will place money in an envelope for Mass cards for Masses to be said for you because that's kind of getting out of purgatory early. How many do you need? We never know. So you keep you know, giving in the money to, for the mass card so you can get out of purgatory. But there is no purgatory. There's heaven and there's hell. And this is grace and works. And they don't mix. There's the problem. I re- I'm friends with a lot of people on Facebook, and most of them, Christians, but not all of them. And this was a Christian man who's on a radio station in town. And he had a Facebook post praising a Roman Catholic priest for standing up or standing, standing against abortion. And he said, I would rather stand up with the Roman Catholic priest than with a liberal Christian. I thought, well, I'm confused. And that's actually what I put on there. Because, you know, the little video was a massive that where this priest is saying that he's against abortion, which is wonderful. You know, Satan's against, you know, or Satanists are against a lot of things, too. Should we join forces with them, I guess, is the idea. But I said, I put a post on there. And I always put a post on because I like to see what people say after I put it on there. I'm kind of weird that way. And I put on there, I'm confused. Light and darkness don't mix. We don't join forces with the unsaved for any cause. I am against abortion, 100% against abortion. But 
Does God need the help of the unsaved for a cause? You see, I don't know, and I didn't put this in there, but when I look in the Old Testament, God always brings the numbers down when he brings his people into battle because he gets the glory. We think the more numbers of people we have with us, the better it's going to be, and that's not always the case. And, you know, read in Corinthians, light and darkness don't mix. Come out from among them. Don't go in with them. And one of the posts was just crazy because it was some guy who said, you know, Jews are, are at fault. And, and I thought, well, what is this even? I don't even know what that has to do with anything. But all right, so you're probably not even a believer. But the other person said, I'm not confused. In other words, she agrees with joining forces with Roman Catholics against abortion. I'm sorry, that's wrong. And you know why it's wrong? Because they believe in a different gospel. They're not brothers and sisters in Christ. I want them to be with all my heart. But if you truly believe that we are saved by grace and works, you're not saved. That's Paul's point here. And it's a huge point. It's an important point. God does not need even our help but he will use us. And I'm thankful for that. Be careful who you are joining forces with. If God's put something upon your heart to do a work, get other Christians involved with that work. Don't get the unsaved. You don't need numbers. You need people who are committed to God, prayer warriors who are willing to follow after God. You know, I mean, I guess all I can say is, you know, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or distort the gospel. But if even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached you, let them be accursed. And as I said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what we have received, let him be accursed. That's not a good thing. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross of Calvary, that means it's finished. He paid in full the penalty for our sins, and we could receive that gift by repenting of our sins and asking him to come into our lives. We receive it by faith. Don't be bewitched. Paul's going to talk about that in Galatians 3. Don't be fooled. Don't be tricked. Don't be deceived. We need to be aware of these things. Well, back in Galatians 1, look at verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a servant of Christ. There it is. Who are you serving? You know, we think that the world's going to love us. The world is not going to love us. Jesus said, look, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. We think that, and I agree, you know, I I like people to like me. We all do. I mean, let's face it. We don't want people to hate us. But you know what? Are you going to be a man pleaser or a God pleaser? That's the bigger question. Who are you serving? Are you serving man or are you serving God? And I don't think you could truly serve man unless you surrender to God in the first place. You submit to him. Our service is totally unto God and it ministers to people. And again, we're not to be obnoxious towards people, but they're not going to like the message. No one wants to hear that they're a sinner. Remember where you were at before you got saved, before I got saved. No one came up to me and said, you know, you're not a good person, you're a sinner. Well, that just, you know, are you kidding me? I'm a nice guy. Nice guys don't get in. Because God is holy, he is righteous. He is without sin. In fact, the Bible says my righteousness is like filthy rags. That's my good stuff. So how can I come before a holy, righteous God in my own righteousness? I can't. But the Bible says the righteousness of Christ has been imputed into my life by faith. He took my sin. He gave me his righteousness. Praise God for that. Be a a God pleaser and you will bless men. Verse 11. 
But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul's contrasting his gospel that was from God, opposed to these false gospels that are being brought in that were from man. Now people say, well, how do you know the Bible's true, you know? You just believe that the scriptures are true. I don't. Well, Think about it. The Bible's been the most analyzed book in history. Archaeology has shown that the Bible is accurate. The manuscripts are, are consistent. I think there's over 25,000 New Testament manuscripts. 25,000. We have the scroll of Isaiah from 900 A.D., and the next one goes all the way back to about 100 B.C. was the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you can look at this if you go to Israel in one of their museums. They have the whole scroll of Isaiah. And the one from 100 B.C. to 900 A.D., they compare. They are accurate. There's nothing that really, there's nothing changes in those Thousand-year period of time. That's pretty amazing. This book, the Bible, over 1,500 years to write, 40 different authors, three different continents, three different languages, different circumstances, dealing with very controversial subjects, and yet, when you look at it, it's one unfolding story of God's love for sinful man. Also, the Bible's prophetic, over 25%. Some say 30 it tells us things that are going to happen before they do. 300 prophecies of Christ's first coming fulfilled down to the tiniest detail. The exact day he would ride through Jerusalem as the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince. Daniel tells us of that. We're told of his birthplace. And it says specifically, Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem in the south. Not the one up in the north. There were two Bethlehems. There is no other religious book that does that. And you know why? Because it would show that they're false. They're not true. But the Bible does. It stands alone. We can trust these words. Look at what's going on today in the world and look at what the Bible says. It talks about a one world government coming together. Do we see that? Absolutely we do. I can't imagine our government staying the way it is today, for another 20 years. I, I don't see that. When you look at the people that are upset with the government, you've got Democrats, you've got Republicans, and you've got people who are neither, and they are so sick and tired of the government that they want to change it. Exactly. Exactly. We've got a one-world religion coming. I've never seen so many Protestants jump ship and board the mothership, the Roman Catholicism, that I've seen in, in my entire lifetime, than I have in the last few years. It's incredible. We are moving to a one-world religion. It's just what the Bible says. And I like, you know, Isaiah says, you know, I've told you these things beforehand. Now you go tell others. This is the hope. You have hope. The world doesn't have hope. See, we've got to remember that. When people look at us, you know, people look at Christians and they see how we respond to these elections and who's running for president. And we're like, oh my gosh, we're dead, we're doomed, we're in trouble, we're going to die. And my response is, is God dead? Did he take a vacation? Is he not on the throne anymore? I don't care what happens in this. I do have, care what happens in this country because I've had family members that fought in wars for this country. I do care. But you know what? It's not going to change my mission. My mission is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And you know what? I looked at my citizenship card. And it doesn't say United States of America. It says heaven. Hmm. This is not my home. I'm an alien here, a stranger, and I feel like that more and more every year. So my mission, my work, the only reason God has us here is to bring the gospel to the lost. Think about it. Why are we here? There is no other reason. We're not here just to gather so we can you know, sing worship songs and study the word of God. We're better off dying and going to heaven. 
But God says, no, I am using you to bring the gospel to a lost and dying world. That's our mission. Don't lose sight of that. No matter what happens with these elections, no matter what happens in this country, no matter what laws are passed, your mission stays the same. We need to remember that. Look at verse 13. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. You know, Paul started out in a conquest to destroy Christianity. He had a spiritual awakening, I guess you might say, on the road to Damascus as he was going to Damascus to grab Christians out of their homes and bring them back to Jerusalem to put them on trial. He had a zeal for God without knowledge, and people were aware of it. It was spread around other Christians who were living in other areas. This man is crazy. He's looking for us. Look, verse 15, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. You know, here's the thing. God has a plan for your life. Even before you were born. It says in verse 15, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. Imagine, God has a plan and all he wants us to do is walk accordingly. Now, here's the thing. You know, I kind of, sometimes I think this way, it's kind of weird, but, all right, God is all-knowing. He knows that Paul is going to persecute the church. Why didn't... God saved Paul before he persecuted the church. Because when persecution came, Christians fled all over the place. And guess what? Those embers of Christianity set ablaze the world. Within 30 years, the gospel message was preached throughout the whole world. God used that persecution in a good way. And Paul was taught as he spent time in a deserted place in Arabia, not Saudi Arabia, but it was a region that stretched from Damascus down to the Sinai Peninsula. He just spent time with the Lord. Verse 18 says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except uh, James, the Lord's brother. So, He's spending some time in Jerusalem. You could read of that in in Acts chapter 9. And again, Paul is learning. He's growing. He's maturing. Paul was a brilliant man. But then the Lord had to teach him the truth. You see, he knew Judaism really well. He knew the Old Testament scriptures really well. But then he had to learn how those Old Testament scriptures related to Christ. And boy, you know, you read what Paul's writings, and it's just, I'm blown away by them. You know, I don't know how, we spent probably, I don't know what, Max, over a year and a half in in the book of Romans. And I had to move along. But there's so much in there. That's Paul. God used this man in a mighty way. He had such a zeal to fight against Christianity that when he got saved, he took that zeal against God and turned it around for God. Amazing man. Verse 20 says, Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God I do not lie. Afterward I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. Boy, there's the testimony of Paul how this former persecutor of the church, of Christians, was on their side, spreading the gospel message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the other Christians were just praising God for what God had done. 
And that, that was our story before we got saved. We may not have been persecuting the church, but we were fighting against God. And God got a hold of our hearts and opened our eyes. And we're not fighting against him anymore. We're serving him. Now, we're going to end here tonight. But, again, I want to drive home the point that there is going to be a lot of different gospels, teachings out there. And you need to be aware. You don't have to know every single one, but what you have to know is the truth. Because the truth will expose the lie. That is so important. And I realize again that it's very hard to take a stand against something because you're going to offend people. Do it in a loving way. But you have to do it. I just had a friend who was telling my wife that she was looking at one of the Christian Christmas catalogs. And they had eight pages of Christian coloring books for adults. Eight pages! Let me ask you something. When persecution comes upon you, what are you going to do? I need a red crayon right away. Really? Why are we... I'm not against artwork. Please, don't say... No, don't come to that conclusion. Not at all. But many, and I haven't looked at every single one, many of these coloring books are pagan in nature. Be very wise. Be very careful. You know, if you want to do a coloring page, get Winnie the Pooh. I don't know. I would stay away from the Christian coloring books. Some people say, yeah, but it helps me to relax. Read a psalm. If God's word can't comfort you and coloring can, something's wrong, isn't it? We need to be wise in the days we're living in. We are soldiers in a battle right now, guys. We are in a war and we're fighting. And I guarantee you, I had a friend who fought in Vietnam, and he tells me stories, and they still trouble him today. I guarantee you, in the middle of battle, he wasn't like, oh, guys, how's my coloring page here? How does it look? Are you kidding me? He had to pay attention to what he was doing. He had to be alert at all times. He went on missions that were called suicide missions because chances were they weren't coming back. Praise God, he did. And he got saved. Guys, we're in a battle. Jude said we, must, we have to earnestly contend for the faith that's been entrusted to us. And I believe that with all my heart in the days we're living in. We have to earnestly contend for this faith. May we not lose sight of that. May we stick to the word of God. The truths of God found in the word of God opened up to us by the spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you that it's truth that we can trust it. That we don't have to worry that there's lies mixed in with the truth. That's foolishness. Because Satan is the father of lies, and you are the father of truth. You're holy, you're righteous. And Lord, we just pray, give us a hunger to know you more and more each and every day. And not just to have the head knowledge, Lord, but to apply these things to our lives, that we would live what we say we believe, that people would see our faith is real. And Lord, just bring glory and honor to you. We love you so much, Lord, and we thank you. Thank you for the lessons this evening. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.